This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. The Holy Spirit continues to set hearts on fire with the love of Christ and inspire people to bring the good news to a world that is aching to hear it. Welcome to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. Now, here's your guide on this grand adventure, Catholic singer, songwriter, author, and speaker, Miriam Marston. And welcome back to Blazing the Trail here on Mater Dei Radio. I am your host, Miriam Marston. And once again, you and I have this chance to reflect on the evangelizing mission of the church. What does it mean? What does it look like to share the gospel and to be part of this adventure of building the kingdom of God, one brick, one heart, one step at a time? I never get tired of this topic because on this side of heaven, there simply isn't any end to this divine project or any way to exhaust all the means that God will use to spread His love in the world. Right now, at this very moment, God is at work in you because you are called to be a saint. And He's working through you because, well, everyone else is called to be a saint too, and we need to help each other along this road. And it's a road that travels through peaks and valleys, of course, the highs and lows of life. But it also cuts through the plains and plateaus, what we might consider the more ordinary parts of our life. And it's these seasons of life that I really have a heart for. And longtime listeners might know of my love of ordinary time in the church. So that's where the focus of this week's episode will be. And I'll turn to some scripture, song, and stories, as well as an apostolic exhortation that gives us some ideas about how to grow in virtue in daily life. But let's start with some scripture. And here I turn to the eighth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And I love these Pauline letters because he was speaking very directly to the different Christian communities um, who were so new at the time. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like to be a member of this new church? And I'm sure there were many questions and challenges, but we also read of the joy and the hope. And of course, all of that was grounded in the person of Jesus Christ who established this church and promised to be with us until the end of the age. So Paul's letters really spoke to the daily concerns that were emerging. And even though this was so many centuries ago, um, our reality is, is actually not too far removed from the people of Rome or Corinth or Philippi. They too were learning how to be disciples of Christ and how to grow daily in their faith and how to share their faith so that this beautiful, mystical body of Christ, the church, would expand throughout the world. So in Romans chapter 8, we read, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
we know that all creation is groaning in labor pains even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that sees for itself is not hope. For who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with endurance. In the same way, the Spirit, too, comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. And the one who searches hearts knows what is the intention of the Spirit, because it intercedes for the holy ones according to God's will. We know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Again, that is from Romans chapter 8. And that last line might sound very familiar to you. I know that when I was growing up, my grandmother used to say a phrase quite a lot, and she only spoke French to me, so it went like this, Dieu fait bien les choses. It means God does things well. And it's really a way to paraphrase Romans 8.28, that all things work for good for those who love God. And really, this whole passage is about waiting in hope and keeping that spirit of endurance. We have a longing within us to see everything come together magnificently, as we know God can and will do. But so much of life is lived in that season of anticipation and waiting, which is why we need that hope and endurance. And that, my friends, brings me to train rides. So I have to say, I just love traveling by train. I used to do it a lot more, especially when I was in college, when I would take the train back home for weekend visits. I attended the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and it would be a few hours of travel to my hometown of Alexandria, Virginia, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., And if you're familiar at all with Virginia in the fall, the colors were especially beautiful with the leaves changing and the bright blue of the sky contrasting with the clouds. So train travel in autumn was definitely one of my favorite things. Although admittedly, Amtrak wasn't always the most reliable and delays were fairly frequent. And I even had to deal with a leaky roof a couple of times, but it was just part of the experience. So I'd settle into my seat and I would try to sit by the window if I could. And I got to know the the itinerary of the train fairly well, like when it would speed up and slow down, delays notwithstanding. So I would just let myself be, be carried on this kind of current, weaving through town and countryside. And it was decidedly not a high-speed train, so I was able to take in quite a bit of our surroundings along the way. And sometimes the tracks were so close to the backyards of some houses that we could catch a glimpse of the bikes on the lawn or the laundry hanging on the line. I would see church steeples and post offices, playgrounds and schools. There would be garbage bins and abandoned furniture, but there were, there were also sunsets that made even the dreariest scene come alive with color. And of course, there were people. In the train stations mostly, but also, again, I would catch glimpses of people outside in the neighborhoods walking and talking with each other. 
And, and I'd be overwhelmed in a good way, mind you, but, but overwhelmed by the existence of all of these people whose lives I was just passing through. So for me, train rides became a space for, for a lot of spiritual reflection, but also an analogy for how so much of our life is spent trying to get from point A to point B, again, that season of, of waiting and anticipation and preparation, which is why train travel really helped to deepen my appreciation for ordinary time. And it's a bit unfortunate that the liturgical season of ordinary time tends to be a little overlooked, as though um, it's not much more than a placeholder between higher seasons and feast days. This stretch of time is often treated like a train ride of sorts, um, a way to get from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, from Easter to Christmas. And yet, we spend more days in ordinary time than any other season. And likewise, much of life is spent in the in-between moments, between highs and lows, peaks and valleys, when it seems as though life is rushing past you, but not much changes. Just like being in that window seat, you sit, you watch, you close and open your eyes to the rhythm of the stops and starts and turns. You pass house after house, field after field, just as we pass Sunday after Sunday, week after week. And if we're not careful, you and I would miss out on the spiritual treasures offered to us at precisely those moments when we think that little is happening. Now, to help us out in this reflection, I'd like to travel by magic ring, not by train, to a very special forest. And we read about it in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, which is part of the Narnia series. And the character Diggory Kirk has found himself standing by the edge of a small pool, not more than 10 feet from side to side, in a wood. It was the quietest wood you could possibly imagine. When he tried to describe it afterwards, Diggory always said, It was a rich place, as rich as plum cake. It's not the sort of place where things happen. The trees go on growing, that's all. So Diggory and his friend Polly have landed unexpectedly in this unusual wood full of pools, which happened to serve as doorways to other worlds, the most famous of which was the world of Narnia. Now, that forest, as Diggory says, is a fairly uneventful spot, and yet, strangely enough, full of life. Think of it, the place was brimming with possibility. They could jump into any pool and new adventures would begin. And similarly, I could get off the train at any point and discover a world full of drama and miracles, joys and sorrows. There isn't a corner in creation that is somehow exempt from the operations of grace. I could very well have an encounter with Christ at that halfway point between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Now, at the same time, the forest has another curious effect on the visitors. It might be because of the blanket of silence or the soft light pouring through the branches or maybe some other magic at work. But the forest makes the two children sleepy and forgetful at first. In fact, they almost forget that they need to step only just a few feet in this or that direction, and they would be swept away to another world. So we mustn't become sleepy or forgetful in the quiet wood of ordinary time. As the trees keep on growing in this in-between place, so must we. Even the unmistakable green of priestly vestments reminds us of this call to ongoing conversion and progress in the spiritual life. 
For it is in the course of the ordinary seasons that we build up our reserves, we strengthen our faith in God, and renew our commitment to each other. There's no need to wait until the next big season to address matters of personal prayer and discipline. I know that I've said variations on the following. For Lent, I shall make an extra effort to be more loving toward person A. But why do I insist on waiting as though the days leading up to Ash Wednesday are somehow inadequate for such a goal? As Pope Benedict XVI has noted, ordinary time does not mean that the commitment of Christians must diminish. Quite the contrary, having entered divine life through the sacraments, we are now called to remain open to the action of grace in order to grow in love towards God and neighbor. And after the Easter season, as the numbered weeks tick by like hands on a clock through the summer and fall, will we let ourselves grow sleepy then? When the parish becomes a little emptier, for example, as people travel, will we press the pause button on our relationship with Christ? and make a private promise to revisit it come Advent when it feels like it's the thing to do. Instead of pressing pause, we must press on. Press on towards the heavenly Jerusalem, towards the final Lord's Day, that Sunday which knows no end. C.S. Lewis gives us another good in-between place to consider, a wardrobe. When I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a child, it was the description of that wardrobe which left one of the most vivid impressions on my mind, the fur coats and mothballs. I used to always wonder what mothballs looked like. Anyway, the character Peter insists that nothing was there when they came across the wardrobe. But his little sister Lucy had quite a different sense. She felt something was there, and she opened the door of the wardrobe and stepped through. And after a few moments among the fur coats and mothballs, Lucy says, this must be a simply enormous wardrobe. But when she felt something like snow under her feet and something like a tree brush up against her hands, she knew that this was no ordinary wardrobe. And my friends, there are no merely ordinary times in the life of faith. Even the thing called ordinary time is as enormous and alive as Diggory's curious and quiet forest or Lucy's enchanted wardrobe. Which brings us back to the peculiar possibility of spiritual epiphanies during train travel. We have seen that when we have little else to do apart from contemplating the passing landscape and neighborhoods, the reality hits us that we are actually wandering into hundreds of different stories, like half-remembered characters in a dream. It is a privilege, but a poignant one, as such bonds are so fleeting. But I would say that above all, it is an exercise in Christian hope. For we believe that we will see both friends and strangers again in the world to come, where nothing is fleeting and all is illuminated. I'm now going to share a song I wrote called Sane and Cheerful, and it's the fruit of these years of observations on train rides, and it all kind of came together after I read a short essay by, again, C.S. Lewis, um, called Hedonics, where he talks about a realization he had while on a train from Paddington Station to Harrow. That's why the first line of the song is, On the Train from Paddington to Harrow. And on the other side of the song, I'll continue with a brief reflection on how we can respond to the call to holiness in the midst of everyday life. On the train from 
In 2018, Pope Francis released his apostolic exhortation entitled Rejoice and Be Glad, which focuses on the call to holiness in the modern world. And near the beginning of the document, he writes that holiness is the most attractive face of the church. Indeed, when we truly follow God's will for our life, that does radiate out into our relationships and interactions. There is an unmistakable joy and peace that comes with a life of holiness. And indeed, that is attractive and compelling. And I should add, it's key to the mission of evangelization. But before we even talk about responding to the call to holiness, we have to believe that the call is real and possible, right? I remember a few years back, I picked up a book by Matthew Kelly entitled The Biggest Lie in the History of Christianity. And I was expecting the lie to be something that came from outside of Christianity, like all the times throughout history that the world tried to disprove this religion. But I was wrong. The biggest lie in the history of Christianity, as Matthew Kelly puts it, is the lie that Christians tell themselves, that they are not called to be a saint. Maybe others are called to be holy, but they are not called to be holy. That is the lie. And it's a lie from the pit of hell, to be totally honest with you, because it can prevent us from even getting started, from being open to what God, the source of all holiness, desires to do in us. But even when we accept this call, we can sometimes get stuck again, this time on the apparent enormity of it. I am called to be a saint. Okay, I believe that, but where can I even begin? And this is why Pope Francis spends a good deal of time in this exhortation and in many of his homilies, highlighting the importance of growing in virtue during the ordinary seasons of life. The Pope writes that, In this way, led by God's grace, we shape by many small gestures the holiness God has willed for us, not as men and women sufficient unto ourselves, but rather as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This theme of small gestures is one that the Pope returns to time and again. He emphasizes, for instance, how Jesus paid attention to details. He noticed the widow who offered two small coins. He is the shepherd who sees that one sheep is missing. He has a fire burning and fish cooking as he waited for the disciples. And in his kind of profile of a saint, what he calls the saints next door, Pope Francis offers a lovely illustration of what this holiness through small gestures can look like. Here is an example. A woman goes shopping. She meets a neighbor and they begin to speak, and the gossip starts. But she says in her heart, No, I will not speak badly of anyone. This is a step forward in holiness. Later, at home, one of her children wants to talk to her about his hopes and dreams, and even though she is tired, she sits down and listens with patience and love. That is another sacrifice that brings holiness. Later, she experiences some anxiety, but recalling the love of the Virgin Mary, she takes her rosary and prays with faith. Yet another path of holiness. Later still, she goes out onto the street, encounters a poor person, and stops to say a kind word to him. One more step. Again, that's from Pope Francis, and I love the the simplicity of his strategy of sanctity, one step at a time. Now, you might already be familiar with the writings of St. Therese of Lisieux, who was declared a doctor of the Church for her extraordinary contribution to the Church. And what was that extraordinary contribution? It was her little way, the way of growing in holiness through ordinary means and on ordinary days. St. Mother Teresa picks it up from there as she says, to do small things with great love. 
So what Pope Francis proposes here is nothing new. In fact, he's the first to admit that, as he writes in his introduction, that his modest goal was to re-propose the call to holiness in a practical way for our own time, with all its risks, challenges, and opportunities. For the Lord has chosen each one of us to be holy and blameless before Him in love. So what might this imitation of Christ, who paid attention to details and who was truly the the master and author of the little way, what could this look like? So when I'm presenting at retreats and workshops, I often tell the story of when I visited a parish in the Portland area years ago, well before I decided to move out here. I was in town for Christmas and spending time with my sister and her family, and my parents and brother had also flown in. And on top of the jet lag, we all came down with some pretty bad colds that year. So in early January, the time came for Sunday Mass, and I was the only one well enough to attend Mass, and I did so, but I can tell you that I was just in a really grumpy place. So I arrived at the church and found out that it was Name Badge Sunday, which is a tradition that I've seen at a number of parishes to help members of the community get to know each other better. Except in my case, I was not very interested in getting to know the community. I was under the weather, and as far as I was concerned, I would never come back to this parish again since I didn't live in the area. Of course, the joke's on me because I did end up moving to the area, and I did end up going back to that parish. In any case, there I was, making my way through the church, trying to keep a low profile. But despite my best efforts, a volunteer called out to me and asked if I wanted a name tag. I responded, no thank you, I'm just passing through. And I'll never forget her response. She looked at me and said firmly but kindly, you still have a name. Now, in addition to being convinced to pick up a name tag, I was also moved by how this volunteer reflected Christ in that moment. She was not deterred by my claim that I was just passing through. I still belonged there as a daughter of God. She did not let me remain anonymous, and neither does Jesus. When we feel like we're just passing through life, perhaps feeling as though we're on the sidelines or even on that train that seems to travel on endlessly— Jesus is there to tell us our name, over and over again, as many times as He has to. His presence cuts through the anonymity, and He reminds us that we were created by our Heavenly Father, who desires to sweep us up into His plan of loving goodness and to lead us into eternal beatitude. And speaking of beatitude, in a future episode, I will pick up with this theme and explore the roadmap of Christian life that has been given to us in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, namely the Beatitudes. Pope Francis dedicates a whole chapter of his exhortation on these Beatitudes, so I look forward to exploring those with you all. But for now, let's just spend some time this week remembering that we are each and every one of us called to holiness, and that we should not fear this call. As Pope Francis reminds us, it will take away none of your energy, vitality, or joy. On the contrary, you will become what the Father had in mind when He created you. And let's consider the ways that we can prayerfully pay attention to details, knowing that so much of this journey will unfold during the course of ordinary days, and that is exactly where the Lord calls us to deepen our friendship with Him. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Miriam Marston, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue to blaze a trail of faith here in the Pacific Northwest. Until then, stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. 
For more information on Miriam Marston and her work, plus an archive of our past shows, visit us online at matradayradio.com or download the Hail Mary Media app. Blazing the Trail is produced at the studios of Matraday Radio in Portland, Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can support this vital mission of evangelization through materdayradio.com or the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for helping us lead souls to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary.